This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. As America now commemorates the 150th anniversary of the onset of the Civil War, there is a different kind of struggle that is now undertaken, and that is the struggle to explain the Civil War, its causation, its effects, and the arguments that were a part of the political and cultural and even theological discussion of the time. Now add to this conversation a book by David Goldfield. The book is America Aflame, How the Civil War Created a Nation. Professor Goldfield has a startling thesis, and that is that the causation of the Civil War has to be explained at least in part by the influence of evangelical Christianity. And you know right now that's going to lead to a most interesting conversation. David Goldfield is the Robert Lee Bailey Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and editor of the Journal of Urban History. He's the author of books including Black, White, and Southern, Race Relations and Southern Culture, which received the Mayflower Award for Nonfiction, and the Outstanding Book Award from the Gustavus Meyer Center for the Study of Human Rights. He's also the author of Still Fighting the Civil War, the American South and Southern History, Southern Histories, Public, Personal, and Sacred, and most recently, the book America Aflame, How the Civil War Created a Nation. Professor Goldfield, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you. It's great to be with you. I found uh, reading your book uh, to be uh, an intellectual feast of sorts and also uh, something of a trial for an evangelical reading the book. And uh, when I came to the issue of uh, of, of your thesis, it, it struck me that somehow you had to have arrived here uh, given your explanation for the causation of the American Civil War in a way that has a history unto itself. How, how did you come to, to this thesis about the, the cause and the meaning of America's most disastrous internal conflict. I'm a Southern historian, and I think any Southern historian who doesn't write about uh, or consider religion uh, is not giving a full picture of the American South. Uh, So I approach this uh, book as a Southern historian, not as a Civil War historian. Uh, And I really became uh, both uncomfortable uh, and unsatisfied uh, with the current explanations about the origins of the Civil War, about the Civil War itself, and about the aftermath of the Civil War. Not that these explanations uh, were wrong, necessarily, but they were certainly incomplete, uh, because they had left out uh, what I thought was a key component, and that was uh, evangelical religion, not only in the South, but in the North as well, because the Second Great Awakening was a national movement that swept across uh, in the entire country. Now, what I found especially interesting is is that your coverage of religion in the South is not all that unprecedented. But at least in my review of the literature, what you have to argue about the effect of evangelical religion in the North as a part of the causality for the Civil War is, uh, if not unique, then certainly rather uh, path-breaking. Uh, it is, is unique, uh, Dr. Mueller, because uh, most historians, uh, when they talk about the origins of the Civil War for a variety of reasons, uh, don't really uh, emphasize evangelical religion uh, unless they're talking about Southerners uh, and their uh, emphasis on slavery as a God-blessed institution. They rarely uh, talk about the uh, evangelical North uh, unless they are talking about some of the reform movements uh, that cropped up uh, during the early part of the 
19th century. And uh, I wanted to look very closely because I thought there was a dichotomy uh, between North and South. And certainly this uh, split uh, occurred not only uh, in doctrine, but also in fact, uh, by the mid-1840s among the two largest uh, evangelical denominations, the Methodists and, and the Baptists. And I wanted to look at that and see what differences there were between northern evangelicals and southern evangelicals. And, and the difference was this, this Dr. Moore. The difference was, uh, among southern evangelicals, the most important aspect of their doctrine was the individual's conversion, the individual's accept, acceptance of Jesus Christ as his or her personal Savior. That was really the bedrock of, of southern evangelical Protestantism. Uh, in the North, uh, that was important, too. That was a key element in their belief as well. But they also believed uh, that it was incumbent upon them uh, to take this process one step further, and that is to convert or reform the entire society. Now, Southerners came back and said, well, if there's something wrong with our society, then God in his good time will rectify it. Uh, but in the meantime, we're more interested in saving individual souls. And, of course, the uh, northern evangelicals uh, believed in a much broader purpose uh, for their evangelical beliefs. Well, let's uh, depart from this for just a moment in order to come back to it. I just read Professor Stephen Woodworth's uh, work on the Civil War, This Great Struggle, in which he argues that it was basically the westward expansion that was the primary causation of the Civil War. There have been various arguments, of course, centering on slavery, on industrialization and development in the North versus the more agrarian and rural settings of the South, uh, sectionalism, uh, Im embedded conflicts from the beginning of the revolutionary and colonial eras. Uh, how do you summarize the basic arguments for how America came to fight the Civil War? The Westward Movement certainly was an important part of it because um, evangelicals believed uh, that uh, we were a God-blessed nation. Uh, we were unique in the world in spreading the gospel, not only uh, of Jesus Christ, but also the gospel of democracy uh, across the land, uh, ordained to conquer a continent from sea to shining sea. Uh, we were, in effect, uh, the uh, new Israelites. That is, we were God's chosen people for this particular task. Uh, Northern evangelicals believe that in order uh, to achieve this great uh, effort uh, of fulfilling God's prophecy, that uh, the nation had to rid itself of its sins. And they believe that there were two great sins uh, encumbering America from reaching this potential. Uh, one sin was the growing power and threat of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, and the second sin uh, was slavery and slaveholding. Uh, so uh, Northern Evangelicals set about uh, the task of uh, eliminating those those sins. And in fact, uh, you can, and I do uh, quote uh, Northern Evangelicals, uh, talking about exterminating Roman Catholics, uh, just as they would exterminate uh, slavery. In reading the book, it seems to me that your primary thesis, uh, and any, any attempt to articulate this is going to be reductionistic, but nonetheless, in an attempt to encapsulate your thesis, it appears to me that you are arguing that the infusion or the combination of uh, evangelical religion and, uh, and the democratic process in the North meant that the issue of slavery and other issues as well took on a, uh, a, 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 an importance that, that the political system just couldn't handle. Is, is that that's correct? correct? That's absolutely correct, Dr. Mueller, because uh, our political system functions best from the center. The greatest pieces of legislation in our history, from the Constitution 
forward, uh, were really uh, products of compromise and moderation. Uh, the difficulty with injecting evangelical religion or any religion into the political process uh, is that it, it tends to uh, eliminate the possibility or significantly reduce the possibility of compromise, because how do you compromise with sin? Uh, obviously you don't, and, and the danger there is that your opponent not only becomes misguided or misinformed, your opponent becomes evil. Your opponent becomes uh, akin to the devil and uh, must be eliminated by some means. So that really is the danger, and that's what happened in the 1850s. The center started to erode. One of my heroes in my book uh, is Georgia Congressman and Senator Alexander Stevens, who later went on to become Vice President of the Confederacy. And he held this center position for about as, as long as he could. And uh, in order to remain politically viable and useful, uh, he had to commit to one of the uh, extremes. And that was really the tragedy, the sadness of, of this uh, process, that you had centrist politicians like an Alexander Stevens or even an Abraham Lincoln uh, who had to choose. And they, they chose, un unfortunately, what was available to them at the time. As you describe the story of how northern evangelicals uh, fueled and uh, and certainly led a movement that that took on this kind of significance, let's talk some names and developments, significant books. I mean, how did this happen? Was this some kind of great evangelical conspiracy, or or was it instead <laughs> a natural development of the evangelical impulse? Uh, well, I, I don't think it was a conspiracy. Uh, so, uh, I, unless you can call uh, all religious movements uh, conspiracies, conspiracies of souls, perhaps. Uh, but um, what happened was that th this Second Great Awakening just swept across the country, and it gave rise uh, to uh, new religious movements and excitements. Of course, the Mormons were perhaps uh, the, the best example of, of this. Uh, but uh, evangelicals. Uh, tended to uh, spread uh, across the country uh, and uh, tended to uh, dominate uh, pol the political process by the 1850s. In fact, by the 1850s, uh, you had for the first time in American history uh, a party dedicated uh, to, uh, if not eliminating, then severely restricting one particular religion, uh, and that was the Roman Catholic faith, and the party was the Know-Nothing Party. Uh, and that party eventually merged in with the Republican Party, which began primarily as an anti-slavery party. So you had this Republican Party emerging in the mid-1850s mid that brought these two uh, beliefs together, that is, the greatest threats to American democracy and to the f fulfillment of the Lord's desire to have this country as uh, the chosen country, the two greatest threats were the Roman Catholic Church and, and slavery. In fact, when Abraham Lincoln uh, ran for the U.S. Senate from Illinois in 1858, uh, the Republican Party slogan that year in Illinois was vanquish the twin despotisms, Catholicism and slavery. So when the Republican Party went to the polls, both in 1858 and when Lincoln was the standard bearer in 1860, they went to the polls as the anti-Catholic, anti-slavery party. Uh, and, uh, in fact, uh, Lincoln won his majorities uh, by relatively small margins in some of the northern states, primarily because he appealed to Protestant working men that the Republican Party would protect their jobs and protect them against 
the one million Irish Catholic immigrants, uh, almost all of whom uh, voted for the Democratic Party. Now, theologically speaking, Abraham Lincoln was certainly not an evangelical. No, no, but... he, he was not. In fact, uh, Dr. Mueller, uh, he wrote a, um, a 500-page manuscript in the 1830s uh, that he called On Infidelity. Now, today when we talk about infidelity, we're talking about uh, uh, people being unfaithful to their uh, spouses. But uh, the word in the 19th century meant that you did not believe in God, or at least you had a question about God's belief. Uh, and one of his law partners tossed the manuscript into the fire, telling him, look, Abe, uh, if this ever comes to light, your political career is over. Uh, obviously, it, it would have been. And uh, during his 1846 run for Congress, uh, his Democratic Party opponent uh, accused uh, Lincoln of uh, being very soft on, on religion. And politicians would continue to make that charge against Abraham Lincoln. But something happened to him. Uh, in 1849, his son died, uh, and he became uh, increasingly uh, aware of the spiritual life that really wasn't that important to him uh, before that time. Uh, it was a gradual process. It was not a sudden uh, conversion. But certainly by the late 1850s, he was commonly quoting uh, the Bible uh, in many of his speeches. In fact, his, gr uh, his great speech of the 1850s, the um, House Divided speech, uh, came from uh, Matthew or Mark, uh, depending upon uh, which, uh, uh, which book you use, but uh, the House Divided speech, the ha House Divided Against Itself Cannot Stand. Uh, and he began to pepper his speeches and his writings with these biblical phrases. So I think by the time, uh, certainly, uh, of the Civil War, he had this messianic view that this was a holy contact, uh, contest and conflict, uh, and, and that one thing or another had to happen. Either this nation would exist half-slave, or, uh, or this nation would exist wholly free. When you look at the role of Abraham Lincoln, it's clear there is development, political and, uh, and ideological, especially on the issue of slavery, as Eric Foner has recently demonstrated in his Pulitzer Prize-winning work, and, and we had a conversation with him just a few months ago. But when he talks about Lincoln, and I think uh, when most of us uh, fix on Lincoln in our memory, uh, our first thought is that he was the defender of the Union, who was also the, uh, the great emancipator. Now, you tell the story and make very clear that his first concern was the preservation of the Union. Was that his own form of evangelical zeal? Uh, I, I don't think it was uh, his own form of evangelical zeal. Um, Lincoln was always a constitutionalist. Uh, he was very, very uncomfortable with uh, his party mate, and this is, gets back to what I said earlier, that uh, the political center uh, was eroding, and, and Lincoln had to find a, a political place, and uh, he went to the uh, extreme of the Republican Party. But uh, William Seward, the senator from New York, said that there is a higher law than the Constitution we, we must obey. Uh, well, I mean, for personal faith, that, that's fine. But, but as a principle to govern uh, our nation, uh, it's not fine, uh, because we are a nation of laws. And our basic law uh, is the Constitution of the United States. And once we stray from that, well, you, you, you can have, uh, potentially, you can have uh, chaos. So as far as Lincoln was concerned, uh, the Union must be preserved to pr prevent that chaos, because he did not... He looked into the Constitution, and he did not see the right of secession 
uh, and he thought that this would sunder the Union, and therefore the last best hope of mankind uh, would be sundered as well. So the Union was always foremost in Lincoln's mind, and, and in fact, um, his record on, on slavery and anti-slavery was uh, ambiguous. Uh, he, as a lawyer in Illinois, he had actually defended a slaveholder attempting to get back uh, a runaway slave. So, uh, And some of his Republican colleagues uh, thought uh, that he was not right on the slavery issue. In fact, one of them called him, oh, that slave hound from Kentucky, uh, referring to um, Lincoln's birth in that southern state. No doubt most American evangelicals would be rather startled to hear that a major American historian blames evangelical Christianity as a major issue of causation for America's most divisive conflict, the Civil War. Now, as Professor Goldfield makes his thesis clear, it becomes apparent that what he's talking about is the fusion of evangelical Christianity with the political process that leads to a dramatic escalation of the moral issues such that the political process breaks down. That's a fascinating conversation, and it also leads to some other very compelling questions. And as to those questions, we now turn. Professor Goldfield, in reading your book, I was left with one huge question. And uh, rare is the opportunity then to turn to the author and ask that question that seems to be ever-present in the book, and that is this. Was the Civil War inevitable? Could it have been avoided? I believe it could have been avoided uh, because uh, events uh, rarely make wars. Gremlins don't make wars. Men make wars. Uh, And uh, we had compromised as a nation on the issue of slavery before. We had done that in 1787 in framing the Constitution. We had done that over the Missouri Compromise in 1820. Uh, We had done that over the admission of California as a free state in 1850. Uh, There was no reason why we couldn't do this again in 1861. It was much more difficult by 1861 because you had an avowedly evangelical party, the Republican Party, now in power, both uh, not only uh, in the Congress, but of course in in the White House as well. So it it was much more difficult to do this, uh, but there were compromise proposals floating about between the time of Lincoln's election in in November of 1860 and his inauguration in March of 1861. Uh, There were at least two and possibly more floating about. Uh, Lincoln, once he took office in March of 1861, uh, could have uh, abandoned the last two uh, federal forts, particularly the one at Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor. Uh, His principle was that these federal forts uh, had to be defended, uh, that uh, this was his constitutional duty, which is fine and and good, but uh, in fact all of the federal forts but two had been abandoned, so it seemed that the, the principle uh, was already flouted, uh, and uh, perhaps he should have gone on to uh, another tack. And uh, by the same token, President Jefferson Davis of the Confederate States uh, of America, his Secretary of State, uh, Robert Toombs of Georgia, uh, begged him uh, not to press the issue at Fort Sumter because he feared that uh, any conflict initiated uh, by the Confederacy would do something Lincoln could never do, and that is unite the, the North. And of course, uh, Secretary of State Toombs uh, was uh, very prescient as far as that's concerned. But even then, even after the firing on, on Fort Sumter, 
uh, Lincoln uh, could have stood down, could have stood back and say, well, let's, uh, let, let's not uh, have a great conflagration on this. But by then, both sides had believed that God was on their side, that this was a holy war, and uh, there was a great uh, Thomas Nast painting that I have in my book uh, about northern soldiers not dressed in their Union blue uniforms, but dressed as crusaders going south uh, to uh, rescue America from the infidel southerners and to restore law and order unto the land. Uh, and that's how Northerners and, and Southerners felt. And if you listen to the lyrics of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, uh, God's almighty wrath uh, coming down upon the South, uh, you can see this messianic view uh, of uh, conversion uh, and conquest. Now, if I could encapsulate the argument uh, further and then ask you a question about it, it seems to me that if uh, if the Civil War in, indeed should be seen as not being inevitable, but thus avoidable. The question of slavery still pertains. Now, in your book, you do a very good job of laying out the fact that in terms of the westward expansion, there's very little hope of the expansion of slavery. Correct. And you dealing with this in, in terms of the territory from Mexico and, and all the rest. So slavery was going to be isolated. Are, are you in basic agreement with some of the historians that are arguing now that, uh, that slavery would have eventually disappeared for both economic and moral reasons, even from the slaveholding states? I think uh, eventually that would be uh, correct, because uh, let's just say for argument's sake um, that uh, Lincoln had not uh, called for troops to put down the rebellion in South Carolina. You would have had a confederacy of seven seven deep south states. Uh, where are the slaves going to go? Where, where are the masters going to go? Because cotton is a type of crop that really leaches the soil and had to be expanded to new soils to new lands uh, every 10 to 20 years. Where are these new lands going to be found? Uh, certainly not in New Mexico and Arizona uh, or, or in California, which was controlled by the Union, nor in Mexico, because the Mexicans were very hostile to the Confederate states. Uh, and these seven Confederate states, uh, what were they going to do in terms of international recognition? No European power would recognize a slaveholding republic. Where are they going to get financing? Where are they going to get investment? And suddenly, uh, the slaves that are in these seven deep south states, suddenly they find themselves in border states where they just go across the border and uh, they're, they're free. Uh, they're in another country. Uh, so uh, it's not likely uh, that slavery would have lasted so, uh, so, uh, much longer. Uh, and I've had a lot of pushback on this, Dr. Mueller, because they said, well, if slavery lasted a day longer, it would have been a, a day too long uh, for slavery, and that's why we needed the Civil War. I think you've got to take a look at the long view. Uh, was this emancipation significant in terms of what African Americans got out of it? Certainly they got freedom. But it would take at least another century for African Americans to gain the fruits of that freedom. Wouldn't they've had a better chance to gain the fruits of that freedom had liberation occurred peacefully, as it occurred in every other slaveholder republic in the world? As an evangelical, I must tell you, the reading your book was a somewhat difficult uh, experience, but also a very, uh, a, a very invigorating one intellectually, because you force us to kind of look at ourselves in this. The distinction you make between northern evangelicals and southern evangelicals was, I thought, most compelling when you spoke about the different sense of, of the moral imperative, even the theological imperative that animated them. 
And in one sense, the Second Great Awakening, especially in the North, infused these Northern evangelicals with the sense that they were they were literally doing the Lord's work to uh, to infuse this uh, evangelical sentiment uh, for the abolition of slavery into the political process. Well, at the same time, if I'm not putting words into your mouth, you're suggesting that the Southerners saw their their own sense of the preservation of order and uh, and and uh, of a concern for the conversion of souls as their moral imperative. How do you explain this divergence between evangelicals in the North and in the South? I think you have to go back in, in time. And um, uh, Mark Knoll uh, has a wonderful book called um, America's God, uh, uh, which I, I think uh, answers your question in, in much more detail than I can. Uh, but I think you have to go back particularly to uh, New England. Uh, the, uh, the Puritans and uh, the Congregationalists that came out from the uh, Puritan movement uh, and many of the uh, Protestant denominations in the Northeast and New England uh, always emphasized uh, this societal acts aspect of their uh, religion. In other words, it wasn't only uh, centered on the individual, but it was also centered on uh, the society as well. And if you look at uh, many uh, of the utopian communities uh, that grew up uh, as a result of the Second Great Awakening, almost all of these utopian communities, these experiments in different uh, social ways of living, uh, almost all of these communities existed up, uh, up north, not, not in the south. Uh, in the South, evangelicals were uh, overwhelmingly concerned uh, with individual conversion. They weren't interested in beating on the Catholic Church or on Roman Catholics. They weren't interested in injecting and infusing uh, their political process uh, with uh, evangelical religion. They were mainly and primarily concerned with saving individual souls and converting them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your book, you deal with, uh, for instance, the revolutionary events of 1848. And one of the things I appreciated about your book, and it's, it's pretty massive in its scope, is how you tie together all these different events in ways that I had not before encountered in a single monograph, where you, you pull together all these different causative uh, effects and, uh, and influences in, in the life of the nation. Uh, you really do answer your own question, was the Civil War inevitable? If the Civil War had not happened... What would you have hoped for? I would have hoped for eventually that uh, slavery, uh, as we talked earlier, that uh, slavery uh, would uh, would have ended. In fact, uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, through most of his political career, uh, was a member of the American uh, Colonization uh, Society, uh, a group that looked to uh, liberate slaves, compensate the masters for the slaves, and then uh, ship the slaves uh, to uh, Africa or the Caribbean. Um, eventually he realized that shipping four million uh, human beings uh, to a continent that they had no clue about uh, was not very feasible. Uh, it was not feasible financially, and it was not feasible from the point of view of the slaves, nor would any African nation be interested in accepting uh, four million uh, human be- beings all of a sudden. Uh, so uh, from uh, Lincoln's perspective, uh, this was not viable. But uh, even during the Civil War, uh, he put forward compensation uh, packages to Congress, and he, fi- he wound up compensating uh, slave owners in the District of Columbia, where, of course, the federal government uh, had direct jurisdiction. Uh, and as late uh, as uh, February of 1865, just a few months before the war ended, 
uh, he offered his friend uh, Alexander Stevens a, a deal where the Emancipation Proclamation would be, could be delayed uh, and uh, some form of compensation be made uh, to to the masters. I, I think the problem with war, uh, Dr. Mueller, is that uh, for white Southerners, every time they saw a black person, uh, they saw the reason for their own degradation, for the destruction uh, that was around them, and for the loss of, of life that occurred. Every time a white Northerner uh, saw a black per- person, uh, he saw the same sense of loss, the same upheaval that occurred, and the same disruption that uh, the war uh, engendered uh, up north. Uh, and and so uh, there was resentment, and of course wars definitely breed resentment. This is one of the uh, messages of of my book. War has unintended consequences, uh, and it, the Civil War certainly had a great many unintended consequences, not only for the soldiers who died and the millions who mourned their loss, but also for the soldiers who came home maimed in mind and body. Uh, the first treatise on what we call today post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, was first written in 1876, and it concerned Civil War veterans and what they were going through. These were civilian armies. We had a very small standing professional army uh, in 1861. These were civilians from small towns and farms across the country, north and south, who had never experienced the carnage that, that occurred during this very horrible war. Uh, and I would like readers to come away uh, from my book uh, asking the question, was there a better way that these results, that is the uh, salvation of the Union and the liberation of slaves, was there a better way this could have come about? Now, it's somewhat unfair to ask an historian this question, but on the other hand, as much as it may be unfair, it's also uh, just about inevitable. Could you then translate uh, what you have learned from this project into the contemporary moment? Yes, it's interesting. When I first started uh, writing this book uh, back in 2006, uh, our government was uh, not nearly as dysfunctional as it seems uh, today. And one of the concerns I have uh, uh, is that, uh, again, our political process governs best from the center. And the, sen- the sense of moderation, the, the sense, certainly you have uh, people in conflict over various ideas, but the sense of demonization of your uh, opponent, uh, both from the, on the right and, and on the left, uh, really, really troubles me because that's what you had in, in the 1850s and early 1860s. The other thing is, is that right now, as we speak, we are involved in three wars of choice, not three wars of necessity. And, and I think that uh, if we view the Civil War as a war of choice, you can see the unintended consequences of these wars, and they're. Uh, they're not central to our national security. And as far as the Civil War is concerned, I think the slaves would have been liberated anyway. Uh, and perhaps their civil and political rights uh, would have been given much earlier. And the Union would have been saved regardless of whether there was a war or not. So uh, the wars not only have unintended consequences, but peace can have better consequences than wars. Professor David Goldfield, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. That was a most stimulating conversation. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, Dr. Moore. All 
Told, America Aflame by Professor David Goldfield is over 600 pages long. It takes him that many pages to convey his thesis and to relate the narrative into which his thesis has been placed. Readers are going to find a most fascinating read. Professor Goldfield is a good writer as well as a very competent historian. He has provided here a provocative thesis, but he also provides a a narrative that helps us to understand not only how he intends to argue for his thesis about the causation of the Civil War, but it helps us to understand the meaning of the war as it actually did happen, the meaning of the war before it happened, as it was conducted, and not only in the period immediately after the war, but even until our own day. This is the kind of history that leads to asking the most profound kinds of questions— And we as evangelical Christians need to learn how to lean into the asking of those questions, even when, awkwardly enough, those questions are now being asked about us. The experience of reading Professor David Goldfield's new book, America Aflame, How the Civil War Created a Nation, is not going to be easy for American evangelicals. And that includes both evangelicals in the North and in the South, who are likely to read, at least in historic terms, of a significant distinction in the kind of impulses that that created the context for the Civil War. Now, Professor Goldfield's thesis is incredibly controversial. It's controversial among many historians because of his argument that the Civil War could have been avoided, that, that had there not been the infusion of all this evangelical energy and the moralism that came with it, that the Civil War might have been avoided through the right conduct of statesmen in the political process. But instead, he argues, the infusion of all this evangelical fervor into this very hot political conflict meant that the political system just couldn't handle the energy, couldn't resolve the issues. Compromise was thus impossible. For an evangelical theologian or historian, reading this book is going to be Uh, Well, an experience that can be best described perhaps as dialogical. You're you're going to have a conversation with this book. After all, it's written about us. It's written about our own evangelical roots. And whether you're in the North or in the South in terms of your own historical placement, well, evangelicals are going to read this understanding that this is a very interesting perspective, not only on the Civil War in America in the 19th century, but about who we are and what we believe and why this matters. Let me get right to the most burning issue here. Of course, we have to look back to this period, and we have to look at the evangelical impulses in the North and understand that this professor has a very credible point that the fusion of this evangelical impulse with the political process led to a political breakdown. And yet, at the same time, we have to look at his argument about the South, where a concern for conversion meant that there was a radical separation between the concern for the individual and for the individual as a part of the larger society. In other words, here you have someone external to the evangelical movement looking at evangelicals in the North and in the South and seeing problems in both places, but seeing the energy coming from the North as that which basically led to the precipitous events that led to the strife that became the Civil War. Now, when we came to the end of the discussion, I asked Professor Goldfield if, indeed, the Civil War could have been avoided. He said he was confident, at least in terms of the historian's hope, that it might have been prevented had this infusion and, uh, and fervor not overblown and overcome the political system. But I ask him then to come to the contemporary period and, and, and speak of the lessons that should have been learned from this. And at that point, he spoke again uh, of the fact that the political process requires, well, first of all, as he said, a, a commitment to a constitutional order and, and then 
to an orderly process of democratic governance that governs from the center, where if you do have any kind of democratic or republican form of government, all legislation eventually has to come. It has to come from the center or by definition, uh, it is not going to become law. Now, clearly, for today's evangelicals, there are some very serious issues of concern for us to think about. First of all, let's go backwards in time. Let's, let's go backwards to his analysis of America in the 19th century and the influence of evangelicals. How could it have been otherwise, he asked about the Civil War, how could it have been otherwise, we may ask, about evangelical faith, evangelical conviction, and how that is translated into the public square? Here we find some very, very difficult issues to face. One of the most difficult for evangelicals is explaining how persons who were committed to the same gospel, to the same scriptures, to the same Lord, could come to such different understandings of the application of this gospel and its implications to the the cultural order, to the social order around us. I think Professor Goldfield is absolutely correct when he points out the incredible distinction in terms of the understanding of the implications of the gospel between northern and southern evangelicals. And it was northern evangelicals, and this is an interesting historical argument, who basically pioneered the infusion of this kind of evangelical piety into the political process over the issue of slavery. And, of course, they had a righteous cause. The question is, by what means is that righteous cause to be furthered? And that's where, at least in terms of Professor Goldfield's argument, it appears that the political system simply couldn't handle the pressure, and it broke down. Now, as we go from that history to the present, we have to ask the question about many of our current issues and the great cultural divide described by some, such as University of Virginia sociologist James Davison Hunter, as a culture war. Are we now in a sort of civil war, not so much between the North and the South or the East and the West, where we're no longer, in terms of, of, of the determinative issues, separated by geography and sectionalism, but over the most basic moral and, and worldview issues having to do with the great cultural conflicts of our time? There's a sense in which this new book by Professor David Goldfield serves as a warning that the political process can contain only so much fervor, and that, in the end, the political process can only operate in terms of some kind of movement from the center, some kind of agreement that takes place that involves compromise. Well, here's where evangelical Christians are going to have to do some very hard and serious thinking as we look to the future. Living in a constitutional order— in a secular society, means that our arguments now are going to sound even a bit more distant from the center than they did back in the 19th century. Evangelicals who are committed to the total truthfulness of the Word of God, to the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ, and to the moral implications of the gospel are going to have an ongoing challenge, perhaps a challenge even more severe than that faced by evangelicals in the 1840s and the 1850s, to understand how we are rightly to translate these moral convictions into issues of public policy, in the public square, in the social order. Professor Goldfield's an historian. He offers us a bold thesis and a very compelling narrative about America in the 19th century. After all, the subtitle of his book is How the Civil War Created a Nation. We're now a part of that nation, and evangelicals in the 21st century, in the North and the South and the East and the West, all across North America are going to have to come to a new understanding of how we are to engage the social order, how we are to be salt and light in a world that, after all, desperately needs salt and light, and in a nation that is governed by a constitutional order. 
These are ongoing issues. They're going to take every bit of, of what evangelicals can bring in terms of intellectual engagement and ongoing conversation. Professor David Goldfield's book may be a strange catalyst to lead American evangelicals to ask some of the most basic questions that for us have to be answered not historically, but theologically and biblically. In one sense, then, we've been thrown quite a challenge by this book. The great question is, are we up to that challenge? Well, here's one evangelical who hopes the answer to that is yes. I want to thank my guest, Dr. David Goldfield, for thinking with me today. Before signing off, I want to invite you to the upcoming D3 Youth Conference being held on the campus of Southern Seminary this summer, June 27 through 30. Designed to develop students' understanding of leadership, worldview, and missions, D3 will be a summer experience full of learning and growing opportunities for high school students serious about following Christ. I'm excited to have Eric Bancroft and Army Major Jeff Struker joining me to speak, as well as musical guests Flame and the Hoffmans. For more information, visit sbts.edu. You can gain more information by going to my website at albertmuller.com. For more information about all things related to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, just go to sbts.edu. For information about Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.